0: Ladies and gentlemen, technical difficulties beyond our control are delaying our presentation. And
1: now good morning to everyone in my
0: nice audience. Station operates on a frequency of 1,406... <laughs> Oh, I heard you. You heard a little little, little reading today. Even though you told me you didn't do a lot of reading, you know most of the stuff.
1: Okay. That is half true because a lot of this comes from my lectures. A lot of this comes from like readings that I did for class. Like I didn't do any extra reading. I did just regular amounts of reading.
0: Uh, uh, So I did
1: medium amounts of reading today and (laughs) I'm like actually so excited for this topic. Like so, so excited because it's actually anthropology.
0: <laughs> it <laughs> makes me so glad. Let's rock and roll. Let's hear what you got to say.
1: Yeah. So I'm excited today for my topic, not only because it's anthropology, but also because it's not really a concrete topic. I mean, it is, but it isn't. So as you know, I'm an anthropology major and my absolute favorite class right now is my psychological anthropology class um, with Professor Samuel Ekalu. And he's a very Italian man. He's so wonderful. If there are any McGillians out there, this man is 10 out of 10. Very engaging. I would definitely recommend. So, two weeks ago, uh, we read this chapter in the book, uh, Group Psychology and the Analysis of the Ego by Sigmund Freud. Yours, yours truly. Yeah, that's not me, but the true Sigmund Freud.
0: The man, <laughs> that's yes. the myth, the legend.
1: legend. Yeah. <laughs> So, this chapter basically discussed identification and identity in the context of a group. Now, do you know what identification is? Tell me anyways. Okay. So, identification is essentially the process. Well, you know what identity is, right? It's who you feel as a person. It's who you are, right? Yeah. Um, Yeah. But identification is when you identify with something so i'll explain this a little bit more later but just keep in mind that identification is when you identify with something when you look at something and you make it a part of your identity like uh. you make that thing a part of yourself right oh, okay. so while reading we had to ask ourselves questions like what makes you identify with a specific group a leader a concept or even an image um, and according to Freud, it's our libidinal energy, or in other words, our passionate energy that has links to sexual energy, but that link is a little bit complicated to explain. So we're just going to keep it to passionate energy, um, that drives us to feel emotional links and connections. So all this passion, we're like, wow, emotions, connections, links. Whenever you feel emotional about something, you feel happy about something, you tend to remember it more, you tend to absorb it into your being a lot easier than it would be otherwise. And Um, we only begin to identify with something that is make it a part of our identity when we can at the same time form emotional bonds with the other people who are also feeling the same vibes as we are so essentially what that means is um, like let's say you're in a big group of people like let's say you're you're in a protest okay or at a concert at a concert is an even better example so you're at a concert and everyone who's there is all vibing on the same band everyone's like wow i love this this band i'm super into this and as you're in this group you feel like everybody's your friend you feel like you're making emotional bonds with everybody in the audience because everyone is there for the same reason everyone in that audience is a group that is identifying with this one band does that make sense mm-hmm. okay so Another example of this would be, so in the United States, people identifying as either a Democrat or a Republican. And people identifying as either a Democrat or a Republican is actually a part of who they are as a person. So for example, someone's like, hi, I'm Stacey, I'm a Democrat, my eyes are blue and I'm five foot four. In her case, being a Democrat is just as obvious as her having blue eyes. So like out of curiosity, how would you introduce yourself? Like what like during icebreakers and whatever. People, people are like Thomas, introduce yourself. Who are you? What do you say? Uh, I
0: have I have this I don't know. I don't really identify myself with things other than history, which is sad. But I always tell people, yeah, I'm the most okay person. No, but that's okay. That's meet. what you, know, you like,
1: identify with.
0: Yeah. I guess. I guess I don't I don't like But uh, like Yeah. I don't group myself with people, you know?
1: Mm -hmm, That makes sense. But I mean, for example, do you say I'm Scottish?
0: No. No, I only bring that up in conversation when it's Really? Yes. I don't go to people and go, hi, I'm Scottish.
1: Very interesting. Yeah. Like, that's actually really interesting because anyways, that's a whole other thing that we could get into. (laughs) Very anthropological, but not for today. (laughs) But like when people ask me, like... Oh Olivia like who are like see your name and one interesting thing about yourself I'll be like I'm Olivia and I'm half Greek half Italian and um I play music those are like my three things that I identify with I'm like that is who I am and like recently I've been like and I knit and I sew and this is who I am because like I don't know I guess I identify with the hobbies that I do right. Mm-hmm. And, like, that becomes a part of me. I feel like that's me, you know? Okay, so once that emotional bond or link is made with the group and you begin to identify with that group, anything that challenges the values of the group you identify becomes threatening or, like, evil. Mm -hmm. You manage to bond so heavily with a certain concept and the people in that group that you start to kind of, like, incorporate that threat into your own being so if someone threatens the group you personally feel threatened you identify with the concept so intensely that you now are the concept so for example People who identify with far right or far left political ideologies see anything that goes against their ideas as more than just a threat. They'll see those ideas as, attack on, as an attack on their personhood, on their humanity, because they and the political ideology are one right so it's like well no like the far right they're doing stupidities because we want to have our freedoms and personal stuff and then the far right will look at the liberals and be like no that's stupidities what are you doing and they feel like personally attacked by what the opposite group is saying about their group right Mm -hmm. also have you ever noticed that, like, people with green eyes, like, when someone tells them, oh, you have blue eyes, they, like, turn into the Hulk, and they're like, no, my eyes are green, <laughs> and it's like, I don't know, I feel like it's because they feel like they're part of the green-eyed group and not the blue-eyed group, right?
0: Mm-hmm. It's it's a tribal thing, I think. I had this thought the other day, actually, <laughs> it's very tribal, yeah, it's, <laughs> you're waiting for me to go on here, I ain't got nothing else. <laughs> continue
1: <laughs> i am i'm waiting for an elaboration because this seems like an interesting concept that i didn't touch upon <laughs> i mean <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna come back to this so if yeah. you want to think about it you can think about it and then we could talk about it later yeah. okay so next so when i read this chapter um the freud chapter and listened to the lecture by my professor i like immediately thought of our current state of affairs and like when i say our current state of affairs i basically mean the year 2020 and when I thought about 2020, I began to wonder how much of our reactions to the absolute hellfire of a year we've been experiencing have been because of the isolation we have lived because of COVID. Now, you may be thinking at this point, like, huh, Th- what? Wait, what are you talking about? Like, huh? <laughs> where are you coming from? This is like completely out of left field. What I mean is... If we think about Freud and his concept, that's the social interaction of a group, um, the concept that we only begin to identify with something when we can, at the same time, form emotional bonds with the other people who are also feeling the same vibes as we are. Like, that concept, because we're in the age of COVID, we don't necessarily have that anymore. We don't have that feeling of being in a big group together and feeding off each other's energies. We were isolated and confined to our homes for like a solid three months and like more in some places and we're kind of getting back into that now too but yet we have had some super intense riots, some extreme reactions to politics and some really passionate people leading very large groups in the name of change. So like, what the heck? Like, where is this coming from? No physical interactions, but yet people are still identifying with causes. So the obvious answer here is like, the internet, right? (laughs) And people still read the news and feel strongly about things which inspire them to discuss it with people online. But I think it actually goes further than that. Um, Because 2019 had you know, disastrous things happening. So did 2018 and 2016. I mean, in 2018, there was the first wave of Black Lives Matter. And for some reason, nobody really remembers that anymore. Um, but yeah, like the, the amount of civil unrest has never been as intense as it has been this year. So what is it about this year that's so special?
0: What do you think? Here. Do you remember the Arab Spring?
1: The Arab Spring.
0: Do you do not remember the Arab Spring back in 2011, uh the ma- a majority of Arab countries basically rose up in revolt against their governments, most notably Egypt. And that was started over the internet, like you just said. So, continue on what you were what you were saying. So maybe maybe they're linked in some way. We'll see.
1: mm mm-hmm. Mhm. So Okay, so now, disclaimer, everything that I say from here on um, about this particular topic is my hypothesis, and I don't actually think there is one right answer. Uh, I think there's so many answers, so many parts into this thousand-piece puzzle. So why are people so passionate this year when... Arguably, worse shit has happened in other years, right? Like, why are people identifying so strongly with so many causes, including anti-masking, which is something that's, like, seriously such a tiny speck on the scale of global importance, but yet, it's filling up our news. So, from what I can tell, I think that unconsciously, people miss feeling included, um, people miss feeling that emotional, physical link with, with other people in the group that allows them to identify with a cause. In the end, our personalities are nothing but all of our passions, good and bad, mixed up together. Our identity is made up of our ethnicity, where we live, our class, uh, where we go to school, what we study. So when we're locked up in our houses and we can't interact with the groups and elements that we identify with, we kind of feel empty. It's like when we go searching for things to identify with because we don't recognize who we are anymore, and in finding new causes, concepts, or people to identify with through the internet, um, we can feel whole again. And in the end, I think as a species, humans fear loss, and one of the greatest losses we can feel is the loss of ourselves. When we no longer recognize ourselves, when our ideal image doesn't match what we see in the mirror, we scramble to regain identity. So it's almost like the internet has been a, um, an assistance to people feeling like they need to find themselves, that they need to identify with something. And I think, you know, those identities were always there, but because of the fact that people are isolated and confined to their homes and they can't necessarily feel interaction with other people and they're not as busy... Um, like it hits harder and people are more passionate are tending to go more to extreme levels to get their point across and especially with so all the time that we've been spending on the internet over this period of isolation i mean you tend to identify so strongly with other people who are in the same boat as you that you then can do crazy amazing things or crazy intense things
0: something i want to add as well yeah if you don't mind go for it so Here's the thought I had the other a couple of weeks ago. It's, it's like, wah! So you got anti-vaxxers, and you got flat-earthers, right? They sort of fall in the same group. They identify as such and such. So here's a question to you. Do you want to be normal? Do you want to fit in with everybody? And do you want to be seen as, you know, just another person? Or do you want to be unique?
1: I think... To a certain extent, everyone wants to be unique, but there's this inherent desire to fit in as well.
0: (laughs) Well, uh, anti-vaxxers, anti-flat-earthers, anti-vaxxers, I think in a way they were driven to believe all that because it fits outside of the norm and they see themselves as special and creative because of this. But the more you make fun of them, And the more you call them stupid, the more they call them dumb, the deeper they dig their own hole, the more they Mm -hmm. start to believe the things that they believe. So just a thought I had. Do you agree with that? Do you think that's an actual thing?
1: Oh, I think that that's a that must be a huge part of it, because I mean, just as I was mentioning before, like as soon as you start threatening a group, as soon as you start threatening someone's something someone identifies with, it becomes a threat on themselves, right? And Mm -hmm. what do people do when they feel threatened? They'll dig deeper into what they believe, right? So it's almost like with the anti-vaxxers, by saying they're stupid, by saying they make no sense, we're kind of digging them further into their hole because Mm -hmm. they feel threatened and they feel attacked so when you feel attacked you go on the defensive and you stand your ground and i think yeah that definitely has a big part of it
0: even if they even if they come to the conclusion that they're wrong they're still going to defend themselves because the worst the worst thing you can feel is wrong and Mm -hmm. you don't like that no
1: especially when you've identified with it especially if it's like now a part of who you feel you are Because it's like, well, no, like this is, this is it. This is me. This is what I believe. I'm special and I'm unique and I'm right. And Mm. now someone's coming along being like, no, you're, you're, you're dumb. Like, what are you even thinking? (laughs) This is wrong. They're going to say, I'm, I am personally offended by your words. I'm not dumb. You're dumb. Right?
0: Yeah. Imagine being told your identity is dumb.
1: Exactly. Exactly. That's essentially being told just like, everything you believe is stupid af and i mean yeah Yeah. and i mean on that point like there's also i think that's why people are so passionate about anti-masking too because like people people don't want to follow the sheep they don't want to feel like they're a sheep and um i think anti-mask maskers fall into the category with anti-vaxxers and flat earthers because (laughs) it's like i mean anti-masking like wearing a mask is So not a big deal. I mean, you put a piece of cloth over your face. You live your life. You could still breathe through it. It's like wearing a scarf in the wintertime. But yet people Uh. are freaking the F out about it. And I think people just want to identify with other people. And like they found a cause that they can all identify with each other with and be like, hey, I'm protesting against something and I feel included and I feel special. And now I'm going to identify with this because I want to fight for something that I believe is legit I guess Mm. and to a certain extent we do that with everything and we target the things that are the least logical to us because it's the easiest thing to criticize but I think we all do it to some extents and purposes I mean even just our political standings I mean it's the same thing right yeah so okay now I'm gonna kind of take a sidestep because this whole concept made me think of something else as well So as I was reading, I was listening to the lectures, I was like, whoa, on the same note, we can also take the case of cultural appropriation as an example. And you'll see where I'm going with this. But cultural appropriation is such a debated and controversial topic. And I think it's because like nobody can agree what is and isn't appropriation. So if we back up a little bit and remember what I mentioned about seeing anything that goes against you, your identity as a threat, we can get a better idea of this. As me, a second generation Canadian-Italian, I can tell you that when I went to Italy for the first time and tried ordering a cappuccino after 11am, my family looked at me like I was insane and they were like, no Olivia, non si fa, we don't do that here, cappuccinos are only for breakfast. But like that absolute disgust in their eyes. They were looking at me like I had just insulted their personhood. And I find that's like a perfect example of the concept of identifying with not only a group, but a cultural rule or a cultural element or an aspect. Mm -hmm. Do you have any in Scotland?
0: In Scotland, not particularly. Well, there's wearing socks, low socks on a kilt. You don't do that. You wear your high socks. I can give you a good example of one in Japan, though. Ooh, go for it. It's holding hands. Showing affection in public, holding hands is a big no-no. Littering mm-hmm. is a big no-no. Walking while eating is a big no-no. You get weird looks. Tipping is just flat out insulting. They don't accept tips. It's just, yeah, it's a whole nother world to them. Just the things that we consider normal over there is like, what the hell are you doing, sir? Mm-hmm. Get the hell out of my shop.
1: And these are all, I mean, really cultural rules that, you know, if someone really strongly culturally identifies with this and then they see that it's done wrong by an outsider who's obviously not of the same culture, like, they'll get pretty offended on the first shot. They'll be like, what the hell, like, super vexed about it, but then afterwards you'd probably teach them the right way and be like no we don't do that here do this instead and then give them a slap on the wrist right like it wouldn't go further than that you'd just be like hey you clearly don't understand how shit works here let me teach you and that's that's that right (laughs) but when it comes to cultural appropriation it's so much more than that And what I find the most interesting is when people from the same culture who identify with the same things do not agree on whether something is appropriation or not. So the first example that actually comes to mind is this post that I saw on Facebook of this little white girl. She was probably like seven or eight, I'd assume. And she was dressed as a geisha, wearing a kimono and had... Yeah, and had. I was hoping a tea you'd bring c- that up. <laughs> um, this I read it and I was like, "Whoa, this is this is mind blowing." So she had a tea ceremony-like situation set up behind her, um, and now tons of people started shitting on the mother of this girl, saying that it was cultural appropriation. That geishas are a traditional, um, are a traditional and extremely ceremonial part of Japanese culture, yeah. but that's but it's not all what
0: non-Japanese act- people saying. That.
1: Exactly, and that's what caught my attention. That's not like. What caught my attention was the comment that a Japanese-born person left, um, and they said that this was not cultural appropriation, and as a Japanese person, they and all the people they know feel honored when they see non-Japanese people wearing traditional Japanese clothing like a kimono, that the kimono is actually a gift that is given to visitors of Japan to remind them of their travels, and she also mentioned that the tea ceremony and makeup looked like the little girl and her mom tried really hard to get it culturally right, and she believes in cross-cultural appreciation so what caught my eye was actually that disagreement why is it that when looking at the exact same picture japanese people living in the united states or north america are experiencing a totally different threat level than those living in japan And now, also, disclaimer, this is my personal hypothesis, and I think that there are so many different elements that play into this, but I hypothesize that it's because of lived experience. So if we read the Oxford Dictionary definition of cultural (laughs) appropriation, (laughs) Uh. it says, and I quote... Uh, the unacknowledged or inappropriate adoption of the customs, practices, ideas, etc. of one people or society by members of another and typically more dominant people or society, end quote. I think the word dominant actually really plays a key role. Um, In America, and I could only speak for North America at this point, so we'll stay in the realm of North America, minority groups were often made fun of and segregated for their cultural identities. For Black Americans, hair, skin color, lips, curves were all elements that the white majority or dominant group used to discriminate against them. For Indigenous peoples in Canada, the potlatch, uh, a gift-giving ceremony and all cultural clothing was banned and taken away from them. But now suddenly, the same majority group that use those cultural elements as discriminatory tools are now using them without citing their sources, which if you went to high school, you know that's plagiarism and that's illegal. (laughs) So that's why I think people from the homeland cultures um, that are visible minorities in North America don't actually have the same view of cultural appropriation as those who actually live here. If you don't live the experience of people being uneducated hypocrites about your culture, you can't really understand the damage it has done and why you do not, under any circumstance, want a white person to even approach your culture. Which I think in the end is pretty messed up because cross-cultural education and sharing is so important to promote tolerance um but so many people mess it up by being uneducated and now this is why nobody can have nice things as a concluding statement if you want to buy moccasins or indigenous beadwork do not buy knockoffs that's damaging if you want to get your hair braided or permed go to a black owned salon if you literally want to do anything that isn't part of the culture you primarily identify with from birth if you live in north america do your research and be a good scholar listen to the voices that have been heard by ignorance thank you for coming to my ted talk i hope you enjoyed this evening's lesson <laughs> <laughs> thank you thank you thank you
0: <laughs> good job good, good job good
1: job it's actually interesting because i did a whole paper last semester <laughs> on um indigenous beadwork indition well indigenous <sighs> crafting and um my god, I in looking at in reading all these papers written by Indigenous scholars, I was I was like blown away by the beautiful things that indigenous people are making. Um, earrings, moccasins, um, bags, anything that you can bead, they bead and it's just so beautiful. Like I would totally recommend checking that out. Um, there's so many people on Instagram that are like selling all these things and it, just absolutely beautiful. And Like, to think that people are looking at this beadwork and going, eh, I'll just buy a knockoff one. I'll buy moccasins from this, like, white-owned company who don't actually really know the significance of them. Because in the end, I mean, moccasins (laughs) are shoes. Yeah, like, moccasins are shoes. I saw them at Walmart. (laughs) And, like... There are many indigenous people who don't see them as particular, like, it's a cultural element, but they don't see them as ceremonial. So they're like, yeah, anybody can wear them. But if you're going to buy something that's originally indigenous, like buy it from an indigenous company. And like, I got my moccasins from Manitoba Mukluks, which is like, yeah, indigenous owned companies. So it's like, send the profits to the people who originally made them, especially if, you know, they've been appropriated for so long.
0: Or go out to a powwow, get it directly from them
1: exactly exactly there There you go and you learn so much from powwows i was so sad when this year's powwows were all closed because of covid i was like no i wanted to go buy stuff (laughs) Uh, i wanted to go meet artists (laughs) uh,
0: got a got a buddy in australia he might come here one day i'm gonna take him to a powwow
1: it's it's actually it's such wonderful stuff and like if you look in the right places you can find all the information you need and the fact that people don't go looking for the information is just kind of Mm-hmm. It's a, c'est dommage, comme qu'on dirait en français. I'm up there, there yet.
0: It's a, problematic,
1: it up. is problematic.
0: I'm up there in my French classes, yet. <laughs> Slow down.
1: You will be, you will be. I am you're assisting in the that, French learning process. That being, that being
0: said, you're going slower <laughs> than my French teacher is, so there's that.
1: There you go. At yeah. least we have one thing. <laughs> so what do you learn about today, the... on the note of European French
0: people? <laughs> European French people.
1: Says the person who already knows what the topic is, but <clears throat> I didn't say that.
0: <laughs> what? A, well, it's time for me to educate you and all the lovely fine folk at home about drum roll, please. Da 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 da. That one, <laughs> Titanic. I have such an obsession with Titanic. It's it's almost problematic. It's,
1: I can confirm. I can <laughs>
0: confirm. It it's a medical problem. I need tested for this. So. I was going to do The Aftermath of Titanic, but me being the absolute Titanic freak I am, I decided we're going to do all of it. Because it is a medical and mental problem of mine, so we're going to do all of it. So. We- can I
1: just can I just interject for a second?
0: Sure, I guess.
1: <laughs> the fact that you literally you messaged me and you were like So like I'm 3 pages in and I've only started like the boat hasn't even been built yet. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, well then, alrighty then.
0: <laughs> I know a little bit. This is a little bit This is a fraction of what I know. I literally could make a two hour episode on the building alone. But. Oh my god. So.
1: <laughs> We're gonna have to make a six part series. <laughs> the building. The building of Titanic. The boarding. <laughs> the building of Titanic. The boarding of Titanic. <laughs> the in the Titanic the icebergs the mechanical engineering problems there and is, the sinking there
0: is a photograph of the iceberg you know that right
1: i actually did not know that there but is a photo- for some reason i just assumed that it did exist
0: yeah it's well you 1912 you know today there'd be hundreds of it people on the ship taking pictures as, as it's coming back then oh my god <laughs> <laughs> back then there's one photograph of it that has Paint on the side of the the ice, essentially, there's paint scrapings on the side of the ice. They have a photo of the iceberg that sank the Titanic. So I recommend looking. You're gonna into have that. to
1: send that to me because I want to see.
0: You're going. I will send it to you and all the lovely folks at home. Google it. That's Yay. that's all I can. That's all I can do.
1: <laughs> Google it or look at the blog. Look at the blog.
0: So in 1907. One of the world's leading ship companies, Cunard, built the largest sister ships in the world. Can you name these
1: ships? (gasps) Oh, maybe I can, actually. Okay, 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 okay. So we have the Titanic. No. We- uh, No, okay, shh, 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 silence, silence, silence. We have- I feel like it's this Greek- is it- it's not the Olympia, is it?
0: This is a trick question. I said Cunard built these ships. This is a different company. Uh. They built the Mauritania. <laughs> White wine? They built the Mauritania and the Lusitania, which weighed thirty-two thousand tons each. And they also held the blue ribbon, which means they were the fastest ships to cross the Atlantic. Or one of them was it was the fastest ship. Everybody, everybody mm-hmm. wanted the blue ribbon. It was, it was like imagine there's one gold medal at the Olympics. That's like a platinum medal, you know. Everybody mm-hmm. wants that. Not even the gold medal,
1: the platinum medal. The platinum
0: medal that goes to the best athlete of the Olympics. So, (laughs) their rival company, the White Star Line, uh, gotcha. Those are the ones that built Titanic. So, their rival company, the White Star Line, decided, it's time to go big or go home. So they devised a plan to build a ship so large, so grand in scale, it would obliterate the competition. Can you name that ship? No! It's your sister ship, the Olympic. The
1: Titanic. No, it's her sister ship.
0: <laughs> the Olympic. I knew wanted, it was
1: the... They, I was like, the didn't Olympia? They them. They the wanted Olympic. to
0: humiliate them.
1: Jeez Louise Thomas. So they
0: decided to build three identical ships. The RMS Titanic, the RMS Olympic, and the RMS Gigantic, which was later named... The Britannic.
1: And um, what is it that the RMS stands for?
0: It stands for Royal Mail Ship.
1: Royal Mail? Like, because they like didn't postage? just deliver...
0: Royal Mail. Yes, postage. What? Because they didn't carry just passengers. They were also mail oh ships. Oh my god. They had a postage... Yeah, they had, they had a mailing system on the ship. So instead of carrying just passengers, well, we can take the half the country's mail at the same that's time. That's something
1: I actually did not know—like zero. I had zero idea that that was a thing, and I'm very impressed. Go on,
0: please. You're you're very welcome. Well, you also got ships called SS, right? So you got to like I don't know the SS. That's the that stands for steamship. So if you hear SS, steamship, RMS, Royal Mail Ship, HMS, His Majesty's Ship, which is a naval ship. And so on, and so Someone on. Someone knows a lot about ships. So Olympic, gigantic, renamed Britannic, and Titanic.
1: Wait, they what had do they a all shi- have in common? Can I, can I just they they had a ship that was called the Gigantic, yeah. and then they decided to change it.
0: They changed the name to Britannic. Good job. Yes. I think that
1: was a good after call.
0: Titanic sank. After, ti- <laughs> after Titanic sank, they're like, oh, jeez. <laughs> so Olympic Britannic. Titanic. What do do these names have in common? It's all Ick. Ick. They all end in IC. So every ship of the White Star Line ended with IC. They had the Celtic, the Britannic, obviously, the Atlantic, uh, and so on and so forth. While their rival company, Cunard, they had Lusitania, Mauritania. Yeah. Where did those end in? Yeah. (laughs) I would
1: fit right in. That's
0: how you could tell the ships apart. That's how you can <laughs> exactly hit the RMS Olivia. Yeah, You'd be a Cunard I ship. would Good be job. a Cunard
1: ship. Woo-hoo. You would be a none of the above ship. <laughs> <laughs>
0: but keep no, you got you got to keep this in mind. You got to keep this in your brain. Okay. Ia is Cunard. Ick is White Star Line. Got, got it? it. Got it. <laughs> so. The second most famous ship in the world after Titanic is actually the Lusitania. Do you know why?
1: Because it's a Cunard ship and it went real fast because of the Blue Ribbon.
0: No, you got to look up World War I history, you yeah? know? It's the ship that was sunk by the Germans, which is one of the main reasons the United States was brought into the war. It was a big, it's kind of a big deal. Sorry, now I know. So another cool fact, the Titanic was an Olympic class ship. And so, a class of ship, if the ships all look the same, they are named after the first ship of that fleet. So, if you have the SS Olivia with five different ships that are identical, it'd be the Olivia class ships.
1: Mm, got it.
0: Fun. Another fun f- Another fun fact. So, in 1907, the, chair, the chairman of the White Star Line, Bruce Ismay, met with the chairman of the shipbuilding company Harlan and Wolfe, based in Belfast, Ireland, and ordered the construction of three ships. They had to tear down everything, their their shipping docks. They had to tear it all down and rebuild it to accommodate the size of these ships. All right? They were They were big, they were huge. And they were building three of them, the crazy bastards. So the Olympic broke round began on the 16th of December 19, 1908. Three months later on the 31st of March, 1909, the Titanic's construction began. And there are amazing photographs of the two of them in dry dock being built next to each other. They're amazing. That's, it's on purpose, though. The White Star Line actually hired a professional photographer to, to take pictures of the ships. So I recommend looking them up. It's amazing. So during the construction, eight people died building the Titanic. The first of which was a man called Samuel Scott, who was 15 years old, who fell 23 feet off of a ladder onto the pavement. And died instantly. That makes him the first victim of the Titanic. It wasn't someone who sank, who died on the sinking. It was one of the builders who fell off a ladder. 15 years old as well.
1: That was a pretty common thing back then, though.
0: So, yeah, it was very common. Child there workers. was no safety harnesses. No, right but also back,
1: child so. workers. I mean, well, the things that would happen in the textile factories. Well, <laughs> ooh, that is a little scary.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, what is safety? What is standards? Another example is when they're building the ship, they had to use rivets to hold the beams together. So what they would do is they would have people who would put the rivets into, like, fire, essentially, and they would turn them red hot. And then they would fling them up onto the ship, and there would be someone on top of the ship who would grab onto it with their tongs. And slam it into the ship, and on the other on the other end, they would have two people's hammers who would hammer it in. And they would just throw millions of these things over the course of, like, three years. That was their job. Riveters.
1: Jesus Christ.
0: They didn't have electric tools either, so...
1: Obviously not, yeah, but I mean, the tools, fact so that they it in scalding had rivets up into the air, that's like molten iron, anyways. Yeah. Oop, no thanks. Yeah,
0: essentially. yes. <laughs> what is safety conditions? What is
1: safety conditions? Wait, can I say something really quickly? Okay, this podcast, I've just accepted that this you one's can. going to be extremely long. But um, uh, that reminds me of, well, in the textile industries, when they would hire kids to be able to clean out the electric, uh-huh. well, the electric, the mechanical looms. So because they had teeny Small tiny hands. hands and teeny tiny bodies, so they could fit really well into the loom that was jammed. And then they would pull out the jam the jam essentially the the fabric and thread that was jammed in the machine and then the machine would yeah. start working again and then crush the child and uh, no thanks very many dead children in the textile industry
0: <laughs> well actually it was very common back then to not to name your child pat until the age of i think eight it was very common just to have child number one number two number mm-hmm. three. Oh, great you're eight so happy birthday uh john
1: <laughs> happy birthday Thank you, uh, father george
0: and there's little there there's little george smoking a cigarette after the day of the textile factory
1: <laughs> literally oh wow the fun times <laughs> yay the industrialization
0: yeah so going back to the titanic here so two and a half years later on the 31st of March 1911, the Olympic, the world's newest, largest ship, weighing 45,000 tons. Remember, 32,000 tons was the weight of the Lusitania and the Mauritania. So they went from 32,000 to 45,000 tons, just as a big screw you. So that's 13,000 tons more. Oh my god. Just to, just to give an example of how crazy shipbuilding was in this time, 10 years ago, the world's largest ship, 1901, was 20,000 tons. So in a span of 10 years, they more than doubled in size. 10 years. That's, that's unbelievably short. You know? Yes. That's like, that's like going from the CN Tower to the world's largest to the Burj Khalifa five years <laughs> later. You know, it's like, what?
1: <laughs> what happened? Technological advances.
0: It, it really was a golden age. It was competition. It was the competition to beat each other. And the more competition, the more demand there were for travel, and there were more immigration and stuff, so the more people, ships they needed. And it just kept going and going and going and going. So, then, disaster strikes. On the 20th of September... <laughs> on the 20th of September, 1911... The Olympic collided with a British cruiser called the HMS Hawk, tearing a massive hole into the side of the Olympic. But because of Olympic's new fancy safety feature, watertight compartments, which means the ship could stay afloat. Clearly, this new technology that they stole from the Germans, by the way, cough, cough, ignore that, is clear that these new ships were quite obviously unsinkable. That's called foreshadowing.
1: <laughs> Yay, English literature. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Seven months later, the Titanic was finished construction, but because of a small alteration in her design, she became one thousand tons heavier than the Olympic, making her the largest ship in the world, only by a thousand tons because of one small only detail, by a
1: thousand. tons. I'll get into
0: tons. later. <laughs> only by a thousand. Well, what's a thousand tons to forty? Very you know? true. Forty-five actually. So then came her sea trials. Sea trials are the the speed test, the safety test. How how quick can she slow down? And, yeah, how fast can she go and stop? Yeah, yeah, I think you get the point. So you remember that blue ribbon mm-hmm. that I was talking the about? Platinum the platinum medal? world's metal. fastest ship? Yeah. Who do you think won it? The Titanic! No! Oh, my God. <laughs> No, Bruce Ismay, Bruce Ismay, the chairman of the Star Land, couldn't care about fast ships. He wanted to hit Cunard differently. He hit them in luxury. The Titanic was absolutely the most luxurious ship in the world. Not only for first class, third class as well. The third class cabins and living areas were considered top notch, even luxurious to the third class. And yeah.
1: That's impressive. You think
0: third class, you think like, yeah, you think cattle, right? You think stuffing people with disease and poor conditions in there. No, it's not. They were healthy. They weren't allowed on the ships, a.k.a. into the United States, without being tested for lice, which was a huge one. You couldn't get on board if you had lice. You had health checks. So everybody down there was healthy, and they were treated as such. They were given clean areas to live, essentially. It was not a bad I, I wouldn't mind living down there. So, that's not all they had. First class passengers were given a gymnasium, a Turkish bath, private massage room, heated swimming pool, squash ball court, a barber shop. The Turkish baths are actually in near perfect condition today. They've been preserved so amazingly. You go in there and the tile is, the blue tile is still on the wall perfect as it, as the day it sank. Wow. The pool, though, the pool is locked away. It's sealed off by one of those watertight door compartments I was talking about. We haven't seen it since, you know, since uh, it sank. Nobody's seen it.
1: That's so sad. I really want to see, really see it. I really
0: want to see it too. Yeah, I really want to see it. Nah, we, we can't, it's behind a, giant iron door I have a question so steel door what's the question when they
1: pulled well when they found the titanic were they able to pull it out yeah. of the water
0: actually they have they no, they didn't try it doing the whole thing because the whole thing would just fall mm-hmm. apart there is a piece though it's called the big piece that they managed to pull out. I can't tell you the exact size of it, but it's huge. Like, look at your wall. It's like three of your walls, essentially. And they managed to pull that up, and it was on display in the MGM Grand in Las Vegas, and I touched it. Ooh. So I can officially say, I can officially be one of the few people in the world that said, I touched the Titanic. Damn. Sorry secu- <laughs> sorry to the security. Yeah, sorry to the security <laughs> that said, don't touch with the, the wire around it. I'm pretty sure I'm the reason there's glass there now, because <laughs> my ass reached over and touched it. So, we're going to mostly be talking about first class, because they're the only, only ones that matter. I feel I feel second class. Second class got a big shaft. Nobody talks mm-hmm. about them. Nobody talks about their life. No. It's always first or third.
1: Exactly, because now, it's either the most rich or oh the well. most poor. You don't get in between. No one cares about the middle yeah, child. No, yeah,
0: nobody, exactly, nobody cares about the middle class, I think you mean. <laughs> So, on board, there were two restaurants. Just for first class, there were two restaurants. Remember I said everything here is first class. So there's two restaurants, just for first class. The main restaurant, as described by a survivor named Walter Douglas, was as follows. It was the last word in luxury. The tables were grey with pink roses and white daisies. The stinned orchestra playing music from Puccini. And Tchaikovsky. The food was superb. Caviar, lobster, quail from Egypt, plovers, eggs, and hothouse grapes and fresh peaches. It's... This guy was high class. This guy was a millionaire and he's like, oh, my good. The last word in luxury. Can you imagine?
1: That's when you know it's luxurious. Just...
0: Yeah, but the weird thing is, actually, uh, you know how they're the Olympic ship, right? It had everything the Titanic had, so if you see pictures of Titanic inside, those aren't Titanic. Those are photographs from the Olympic hmm. And not only that, this style went out of fa- like out of fashion, like five years later. They had to refurnish the whole ship because it was out of fashion. It went out of fashion so quickly.
1: Is it because I wouldn't say
0: five years later, let's say ten oh, yeah. years.
1: I mean, there are probably very many historical factors, including the Great Depression, that changed the aesthetic of the twenties, well, the tens, mm. or the Roaring Twenties. I mean, the twenties were well, their own aesthetic. Uh.
0: Well, you had the well, well, the, during the First World War, the Olympic was commissioned as a troop ship, so it was kind of irrelevant. But it was after war, during the twenties, where it went out of fashion really, really, really quickly. You know. You think Titanic. You think thick corsets. You think men with top hats. You think things like that. That was not a thing in the twenties, and the fashion went with it.
1: I mean, the twenties was you know a completely I mean? different time.
0: Oh yeah, it was complete. Yeah, from ten years before, it was it was a whole mm-hmm. nother world. So, so what else? I keep sc- I kept scrolling and I'm <laughs> I'm lost. I'm like I can't be nearly finished. So dinner was the highlight of the day that would last several hours, usually up to eight courses. There is a marvelous video that I will link in the YouTube description of a restaurant that serves Titanic's final meal. It is one of my favorite videos of all time, and it is on my top five list before I die, is to eat at this restaurant. Though it's $400 per person.
1: Oh my so. god! Yeah. That's ridiculous.
0: Yeah, I really... It's in, it's in, it's in Ireland. I think it's in Belfast. Mm. And I really want to go. I really want to go. I I need to make a pilgrimage to Belfast, Titanic City. You know? Forget
1: about religious pilgrimages. Your religion's Titanic.
0: Oh, hell no. I'm going a Titanic pilgrimage. I want to walk with a stick across Ireland until I reach Titanic. <laughs> so, yeah, okay, I'm going on a tangent here. But, you know, remember I said Harlan and Wolf, the people who built the Titanic? The dry dock is still there. So you can go see the dry dock where they built the Titanic. And there's a, an amazing museum right next to it as well, which I got to go see with my stick and pilgrimage. So, Titanic had two restaurants, and a dining saloon, salon, S A L O O Saloon. I have no idea. Saloon, salon, saloon. I think westerns, you know, bursting into the saloon. <laughs> it wasn't like that. <laughs> it was. It was more like a restaurant to relax in. You know, no dress code and a buffet, like most ships these days. That's that's the best place to go. By the way. <laughs> While the other two places, while the other two places had dress codes and things like that, so there were there were also two cafes on board. The second cafe was not on the Olympic. Do you remember what I said earlier about it was a thousand tons heavier? That was the second cafe. They noticed on the side of the ship. They noticed on the sides of the ship there were these promenade decks that weren't being used by anybody. They were empty. You know, they would look at the co- the people in the Olympic and go, okay, nobody's walking here. Let's turn it into a cafe. So that's what they did. They extended the walls out and they made it into a cafe. Mm, intelligent use of space. They got an empty room. Let's use it. Exactly. That's what you got to do. So other than restaurants, there were lounges. There was a smoke room. This was men's only, by the way. No ladies allowed in the smoke room. Uh, reading and writing rooms. And it just goes on and on and on. There's so much to do. But dinner was the highlight. You spend your whole day waiting for dinner and then you spend the rest of your day eight hours or so at dinner talking about your wealth.
1: (laughs) And lavishing on
0: a lobster. Exactly. So, on April 10th, 1912, the Titanic departed on first maiden voyage from Southampton, England, carrying 920 passengers captained by veteran Edward Smith, who at the time was actually a celebrity Which is so weird to me. A ship's captain was the celebrity. Name one ship captain ever. Nobody. Yeah. Well, you got Edward Smith. He was... Everybody knew who he was, even before Titanic sank. Because he had... He was actually the captain of the Olympic when it crashed into the other ship. Oh my god. So... Everybody knows. Yeah. (laughs) Oops. So the Titanic was departing from the pier, and it caused a displacement in the water so large... The SS City of New York broke from its cables and nearly smashed into the Titanic. But a little tugboat they called the Vulcan whooshed in and saved the day. (laughs) So it's kind of weird to think the SS City of New York nearly ended the Titanic's voyage where it was heading for New York City.
1: Wow. Foreshadowing.
0: I don't know. Foreshadowing. Coincidence? I think not. (laughs) Yeah, spoilers. It sank, by the way. It didn't make it In
1: case you didn't know.
0: (laughs) In case you didn't know. So, off she went on our voyage. On her maiden voyage to where?
1: New York City!
0: No! Oh my god. She had to stop off at Cher... (laughs) She had to stop off at Cherbourg, France first, where she picked... Yeah, she was so large, she couldn't fit on the docks at Cherbourg. So they had to ferry people out onto the ship. One of those ferries... Is still around today. It is the only white star ship still in existence called the SS Nomadic. See, I see Nomadic steam. It's the only one. Yes, steamship Nomadic, and it's in Belfast too. You can go see it, which I plan to do (laughs) on my pilgrimage with my stick. So, in Cherbourg, she picked up two hundred and seventy-four passengers, and she set sail for New York City. No, Queensland, <laughs> <laughs> Queenstown, Ireland. So, where she picked up another 123 passengers, and she was too large to fit there too. So they had to tug boat people out. So that made a total number of passengers 1,316, 913 crew, making a grand total of 229. If you match up the numbers, they don't actually add because people did get off in Cherbourg and Queenstown. Lucky people. So but the but leaving leaving Queenstown there were 3 1316 passengers so olivia mm-hmm. on the 11th of april she left queenstown for new
1: york city
0: new york Yay! she was scheduled to arrive on the 17th of april
1: Spoilers. dock at pier
0: 59 she did not si- Six days of absolute smooth, luxury sailing. What could possibly go wrong?
1: <laughs> Says every person and right before it goes
0: horribly wrong. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is part one.
1: <gasps> no.
0: That's part no. one. Leaving you on a cliffhanger. You're hang. kidding. Leaving you on a cliff. I'm not oh kidding Oh
1: my god.
0: <laughs> Tune in next week to hear part two.
1: That is that is rude, but I like it. We're on a cliffhanger. It gives me inspiration wish, to listen I to next week. Yeah,
0: exactly. <laughs> well, you're not going to be not. Just I'm just going to be, be listening. <laughs> just you talking into the void. So, I wish to end this with a quote from Captain Smith, made in 1907. I could not imagine any condition which would cause a ship to founder. Modern shipbuilding has gone beyond that.
1: Foreshadowing.
0: Foreshadowing. The man who sailed the, sh- the ship to its death. Oh, man. Spoilers.
1: All right. Well, that was very educational. I'm not going to say anything about it yet Edumatic. because part two is not done. And I'm really curious to know what I'll happens <laughs> later. Because so much. I have learned so much. So, oh, oh, my gosh. I have learned so much already. <laughs>
0: You learned too much. You didn't need to know any of this. Now I know. Someone's gonna, someone's gonna kidnap you though. Someone's gonna kidnap you. Put a gun to your head and say, "How
1: many cafes right. were on the Titanic?"
0: <laughs> the Cunard ships ended in what? Yeah. Yeah. Good Thanks. job. You can go Thank now. You. You're Thank free. You. <laughs> Just don't tell anybody you were down here. Takes gun, puts back in pocket. <laughs> Just save this time.
1: All right. That was very edu- educational.
0: So, yeah, that was everything from why they built it up until the day they sailed f- away from Queenstown. What's... Until the last day she saw land. Ooh,
1: that's a good way to end cute. it. That's cute. All right. Well, no. on that note, that's very wonderful. It's a very solid, pleasant note to end on.
0: Yes. It's a good, happy ending, unlike next week, where it's going to be a bit more. Uh, not that's
1: okay happy i approve fun i i'm ready for the (laughs) sadness i may do something also kind of down and Mm -hmm. sad next week i think i will okay fantastic
0: how about two seconds of moments awkward silence and then we end it
1: okay fantastic let's do it
0: Okay, bye. Bye.
1: Goodbye.